0: And there's no way to be representative in a collection where you have 12 voices. But even even with just a dozen stories, it was, I don't wanna use the word amazing because that implies like some sort of positive discovery. I mean, it's, it's sobering. It's incredible in the sense of hard to believe in some ways, the identity, the history, is basically the connecting thread for a whole bunch of inequalities around healthcare, around housing, around employment, around social services, around childcare, because we, we did, we struggled with it. Uh, initially, it was like, how, how do I justify that this is urgent in that news kind of sense of the word? And it's not.
1: Dow is managing editor at Voice of Witness. Now, they develop oral histories to amplify the voices of marginalized communities, and they link those to education programs that are rolled out in, in schools and other places. And the range of this is really fascinating. Current projects include, for example, the, the aftermath of Hurricane Maria the experience of indigenous Americans in reservations, the settlement of refugees in Appalachia. The project that drew me into this material was on urban life in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. So we start this one off, however, a bit more localized with Dow's own biography as a child refugee in a working class neighborhood. We talk about the path from there through social justice activism into this specific kind of work. And from there, it's, it's a bit of a deep dive on the ethics and practice, how to select stories that matter, how to center the narrator rather than your own views and political agenda, the arts and science of getting this kind of material to a wider audience. I found this fascinating. It is, is obviously of a great deal of relevance for this podcast, so I do hope you enjoy it. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's hear from Dow. Well, I I do usually start these in the same place. Uh, If you meet someone socially um, at a a bar, at a restaurant, a friend's place, how do you describe what you do for a living or, or as a vocation, perhaps?
0: I suppose I can just introduce myself the way I would. I'm Dow. I am a managing editor for the Voice of Witness organization, and I basically run uh, everything that has to do with the book series that we put out. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I'm deeply interested in people's life stories, and I'm super conscious about trying to see where the telling of those life stories might support advocacy around issues of social justice. I would say I get to do the very exciting, fulfilling job of curating and illuminating some of the, the key issues when we see you know, a society that's fraught with so many um, issues, injustices, so much inequality. I feel like one of the key voices to hear from are those of the people who've been affected directly. So I think that's my job is to seek out and amplify those voices and those stories.
1: Do people get that? Do they sort of understand what the product, you know, what that looks like and 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 what you're talking about in a more concrete sense?
0: Uh, oftentimes, you know, I'll use shorthand, I'll say we do kind of edited first person narratives. We do oral history, but not necessarily in the sense of something that will get archived in a library collection for scholars to look at, but more something that you might read in a novel rather than in a human rights report. So we're we're very concerned with presenting these stories in a way that they have Novelistic details and at the same time are very very attuned to honoring the everyday experiences that people have. You know, it might not be super interesting to hear about how, for instance, a farmer practices composting, but to hear about their life aspirations, to hear about what growing up was like for them to hear about the connection between them and their families and the land and telling the history, you know, I see it as being a communal history in a sense. It is very much one individual story, but it can also tell a larger story.
1: And you, and in your, <laughs> in your bio on the website, you um, described yourself, I believe, as an old school radical lefty, which you know, I, I'm, I'm on completely on board with, uh, I'm, I'm just curious how you, you went from that, uh, perspective on the world, if I can put it that way to the, the storytelling piece hmm. specifically, what, what was it that, um, made that seem compelling or interesting for you as, as something you wanted to be, uh, you know, doing on a day-to-day basis? And sure.
0: I think, you know, I, um, my parents are refugees from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I myself was born in Vietnam, but I came to this country when I was quite young, two and a half. So I grew up in Philadelphia. And at the time, you know, if you're resettled in a big city, a lot of times you get resettled in uh, neighborhoods that have other working class people. Mm -hmm. And in the case of my family, and I think this is true for many, many (laughs) refugee families, you get put in a situation where there are not lots of resources Mm -hmm. and lots of people who need them. And because of the history of this country, you know, the racial divisions, it's something you're taught. So instead of, for instance, recognizing that the conditions for people like people in my family were terrible, not because of, our neighbors Mm. who happened to be second-generation Poles, immigrants from Eastern Europe, and also African-Americans. We were, I think, put in a situation where there was basically competition. And uh, I felt like completely ill-equipped through formal schooling to understand that history. Mm. How did it come to be set up? You know that people um, that people ended up living in neighborhoods and situations uh, that were systematically under resourced, that were then put into competition with each other, and I suppose you know I was acutely aware of this inequality. And also uh, aware that instead of people taking time to protest their conditions, say to their city government or to the federal government, um, first of all, with refugees, there's this, this feeling of you should be grateful that you're here. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And there's a sense of you don't actually belong here. So this, this otherness, this inability to gain access to rights because they are tied to citizenship Mm -hmm. becomes kind of like a a tough a tough quandary in a sense so I could see that there is inequality and I could see that other people would look at the newcomers as being the root of the problem the newcomers would look at the people already in the neighborhood as being part of the problem. And you have just, you know, (laughs) it's, it's, it's fertile ground for a lot of social conflict. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like growing up and this was when I was, I would say in middle school. So around age 10, 11, 12, that we were, we didn't have an understanding of our history of past movements to try to gain some of those rights, but I was learning about it. I remember reading, I'm not sure if you might be familiar with this book, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Yeah, of course. So for me, that was, you know, a life-changing book.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) That's where I see my old school radical roots coming from. And, you know, we use the term radical in its original meaning, going to the roots. And I I remember just feeling like not seeing myself reflected in what I was learning in the schools, in popular media. There was, you know, very little sense that people were interested in um, hearing our stories. You know, I was protesting, I was organizing, I was writing, but, I also felt like stories were kind of a crucial way of connecting, especially with people who might not be patient enough or curious enough to read a whole book about the history, but might be interested in having a conversation.
1: It's quite striking looking over the the catalogue, at least of the last few years. It's quite sort of broad in terms of the kinds of stories um, that you're you're trying to tell. I mean, there's um, sort of ranges from uh, inmates on, in solitary confinement through the aftermath of Hurricane Maria to uh, refugee resettlement um, quite recently, I noticed, which obviously speaks to the, the context you just described. This might be a dumb way of putting it, but it's a, it's a, a big world out there with a lot of perspectives that are underheard, um, or in some cases completely unheard. And how do you approach that in terms of uh, identifying issues that you think are important, but also interesting that, you, that are worth sharing?
0: So I think in the past, Voice of Witness basically waited for proposals to come to us. You know, any topic, region, um, and this was a little bit more projected worldwide And we would kind of put it through our editorial advisory. We would debate Mm -hmm. and discuss, you know, what are the merits of this? Does it look like the project could actually happen? What kind of support does it already have? Who is the person proposing it? So we did um, about three, four years ago, go through a revisioning of our mission statement in which one of the things that we felt was important to do was to actually dig deeper uh, instead of going broader. And so one of the things, I mean, this is an unfortunate uh, truth that we have grappled with for quite a while. You know, we have a network of educators and schools that we uh, are in community with and a lot of times it was difficult, unless there was some kind of direct connection to Mm. the United States for those books to get a wider hearing. You know, I still think that it's important for those kinds of projects to take place. I just don't know if we're the best organization to do so. And so one of the things that we did was also kind of refocus and say, well, actually, issues of migration um, are definitely a part of the politics of you know, this country. So while we may not do a project that's focused on the South Sudan today, the question of immigration, mm-hmm. um, exile, dispossession, uh, those are all questions that are important for us. And so we've kind of narrowed down our focus. This doesn't mean that we don't do things, um, books that fall outside of these two areas, but the two that we've chosen to focus on are migration and the criminal justice system. So for us to just quote unquote, narrow it down, it it's just having a, a deeper focus, having, you know, committing ourselves, recommitting ourselves to exploring those issues in a multifaceted way.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the strategy consultant to me says, of course, that makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> the, the, the other side of me says is a little bit sad um, oh. that the international products didn't fare as well. Is the metric there just sort of sales or you you gauge interest? I mean there's a you know there's a book product which is bought and sold of course, but you also have the education effort. So What's the what's the metric there, or what?
0: Uh, we develop a curriculum for every yeah. book, and you know, you can you can measure the number of downloads. Oh. You <laughs> can precise. measure the the yeah. number of groups that call you back and yeah. say, "We would love to do an event with you. Um, we would love to use this mm-hmm. in our curriculum in this class in this setting. Um, and we haven't found that, you know, to be honest, I mean, some of these books are much older, so that accounts for some of it. I would say that one of the things that we do, we haven't given up an internationalist or global perspective.
1: Mm. It's
0: just a little more focused, a little more like, you know, this is what I think we're seeing, are. Uh, our, community partners say that they need they need books and curriculum that are focused around issues that they're going to be teaching in their classes Mm. and so you know Haiti is not necessarily on there um, but it is it's part of our backlist it will forever be part of our DNA that's the way I look at it
1: well indeed the volume on Haiti was the the one that is perhaps sort of closest to my immediate um, working interests. So that was the first one I read, of course, but I probably don't represent a a mass market of huge size. But there's kind of a paradox there, right? And that you started by saying that you felt ill-equipped through formal schooling to sort of access um, the kinds of stories that uh, resonated with you or relevant to your circumstances. But at the same time, you're kind of dependent on having some entry points in order to get fraction. Uh, that sounds mm-hmm. like a, a bit of a difficult thing to balance <laughs> if you're if you're tied to you know what is in high school curricula or or you know whatever right. the, the entry point.
0: Yeah, I guess you know it's it's about looking at ways to expand it where you won't be necessarily swimming against the tide, mm-hmm. but more able to connect with. And, and here's here's one thing that I would say also really influenced us to, to commit to making this, you know, slightly more focused focus is in the past, a lot of our projects were executed by project editors who were not necessarily part of the narrator communities. Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean, people who, you know, are scholars, doctors, lawyers, who don't have any direct connection with some of the communities that were being highlighted. And one of the things that I think we are very conscious of, and you know, trying to figure out ways to nurture is having more of the, from the very inception of the project, emerge out of the narrator communities. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, a perspective in which who are the experts? It's not going to be someone from, quote unquote, outside. I think centering... Um, projects in the United States also means centering the folks who are part of collaborating with us and producing um, those projects. We can support better these projects if they are here rather than, you know, in another country.
1: I mean, in my my experience, and I I have worked a lot internationally, there's always a certain amount of, you know, fear almost in, in entering a community and trying to capture their perspective, because you don't, <laughs> you, know, uh, you don't know a lot of the time, and uh, you can get I mean, when there's sort of resources involved, you can you can actually get sort of tricked and, and manipulated quite easily. But in, in this in this context, even I, I imagine it must be uh, a certain amount of uncertainty as to you know what the product is going to look like and and how. It's going to play out in terms of someone's, you know, their positioning and what kind of slant they'll take on, on things. Uh, is that, I mean, for me, that would be a bit nerve-wracking in a way. Maybe you're a hardened editor at this point.
0: Um, so I think the way we, the way we approach it, I mean, it's a process that, you know, all oral historians, I think, are very familiar with. But we don't come to any projects with a set agenda. So it's a it's an approach that's born out of curiosity and inquiry and a commitment to discovery. When you we actually avoid um, working with NGOs in in the sense that a lot of times when you have um, an agenda-driven model, it's like you are trying to prove a point, a hypothesis that you go in and you're saying, I will only really be interested in talking to certain people whose stories uh, kind of support what I am trying to prove. But when you go in with a more open approach, you don't tie yourself down to having to discover certain things. And so you can be a little bit more um, open and, you know, still be quite rigorous, still be quite um, thoughtful about how you explore and how you help your narrators um, tell their stories. But I think it relieves a lot of pressure. It's like, you don't have to make a point about gentrification. Literally, you just have to talk about your life and your experiences and what's important to you. So it it t- takes the pressure off for people to feel like they have to be representative or um, have to have a line. In fact, you know something that I tell our project editors and interviewers all the time is if you get the sense that your narrator is getting up on a soapbox of any sort and trying to convince you of something take a break because it's really it's really about like refocusing and asking certain kinds of questions that are maybe more unexpected um I always think about I don't know if you're familiar with uh Svetlana Alexievich's oh, work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So,
0: but she One says of my this, pers-
1: Personal heroes, I will say.
0: Yeah. She, she says in, in the introduction to, I think it's in Secondhand Time, she talks about how, you know, a lot of her books, they're about big historical shifts. They're about like the breakup of the Soviet Union and socialism. But she never asks people, what do you think about socialism? She asked people, you know, what did you do when you go out on a Friday night in your town? You, you know, you ask about hairstyles and dances and their love lives. And it's through those mundane, I think she calls it chasing the mundane details of everyday life that you find, you know, some deeper, deeper truths and deeper meanings. And that's kind of, I think, a much more fruitful approach than going in with a obviously we are supporters of human rights and, you know, making big changes in the world. But uh, sometimes I think it's through the smaller stories that those changes um, really stick with people. Mm. Um, It's not the facts and statistics, but the people and the stories.
1: Might be a slightly weird question, but do do people know how to read that? Or do they expect a, a message, right? Do they expect a, a sort of bottom line? Are they are they prepared for that? When they open a book like this, are they prepared for that kind of more open-ended uh, approach? Or are we conditioned to want mm. uh, something specific at the end, <laughs> saying this is yes, what I you hope should so. stick away.
0: <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I think haven't had that um Mm. raised as a point of contention I think that people appreciate nuance and complexity and I I certainly one thing that I have seen a lot of people connect with the flawed human characters in our books Mm. um and I think that's just pretty normal (laughs) in the (laughs) sense that you know um encountering someone in a text who is relatable and makes bad choices and has bad luck. Sometimes those are all things that I think, yeah, can make someone more human, more relatable, not less, but Mm. maybe, maybe (laughs) I think people do have expectations like a beginning, middle and end. And we work very hard in our stories, like for, you know, coherency and chronological logic. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to make sure that no one's introduced without explaining who they are and that you have a picture of where someone grew up and what kind of house and what kind of town and, you know, those kinds of details that there isn't factual information missing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think that the stories become more readable in that sense. But that element of surprise is something I think that I definitely respond to when I'm editing the work. I'm always saying, you know <clears throat> if you if you don't have that, then then you're I think, not getting the the deeper story mm. um, because oftentimes, you know human experience is is complex and contradictory even. And it's not a problem, I think, to to showcase that. It's uh, It just is more realistic.
1: Has the project ever taken a turn that was very surprising for you, or, or where it went in a direction that you didn't anticipate? I mean, not in a bad way, necessarily, but where you thought it was <laughs> going one way, and it uh, ended up being something quite different?
0: Um, I. I don't think a project overall has done that, but certainly stories, individual narratives have. Mm. Um, and then, you know, other times they've, they've taken a turn in a really, in a way that you wouldn't want them to. But no, I wouldn't say, except for the projects where you really mm. want them to finish mm. and they don't. But we're not going to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All, all projects were completed on time and on budget.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. <anyone> ask?
1: <laughs> Let the record reflect this. Yes, well, I think, I think we all have that experience from, from time to time. This idea of sort of narrative coherence is interesting to me. When you say a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, I guess you're you're talking more at the level of individuals that there's some sort of closing of the loop. I guess in terms of of, of where they started and, and some sort of closure and where they ended rather than leaving too much hanging. Is that is that true of the the sort of meta-narrative or the, the, the underlying structure of a project? Does that have a beginning, a middle, and an end?
0: I think less so. I think yeah. it's more just for a story to be readable and to be legible. Mm-hmm. Whereas for a book project, I mean, a lot of our collections are – you know, green in a sense, both because the issues that they focus on haven't been resolved. And I think, unfortunately, for instance, the one of the very first books that we did, uh, you know, was about undocumented folks living in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that book, I think, went into the 10th anniversary recently. And it's not that much different. We're yeah. still doing books on undocumented folks living in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know. So in one sense, the 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 end would be, you know, resolution of social injustice, mm. which I would be thrilled to see an end to the need for my job, sadly. But <laughs> I think we'd have different stories to tell.
1: No, indeed. In mean, a false sense of closure would be very very dangerous, of course, but it's an interesting,
0: mm.
1: you know, uh, these are my words, not yours, but it's an interesting insight <laughs> for me that people might feel a bit sort of unsatisfied in a way if the individual narratives mm. didn't sort of make sense as a, as a you know, relatable right. human story that was missing.
0: A lot of times when we are able, we do revisit our narrators mm. as close to publication as we can to ask for an update. And there will oftentimes be a a little postscript, maybe a paragraph or two that just like even further updates you with where the person's at. You know, these books, you know, they start four or five years before they become a published product.
1: (laughs) Do I I detect some slight (laughs) weariness with the the long time? Never,
0: (laughs) never. You know, we're in the business of – I do compare the work that we do with the slow food movement, right. you know, it yeah. does take a whole lot longer, but the the end product is something that you really can savor and enjoy in a different way. We're not, we're not trying to be, you know, tied to the news cycle and we're not trying to produce something that you can only ingest in 140 characters mm. that will never be, Enough, I think, and people have always, <laughs> not always, but more more recently, you know, proclaimed the end of book culture and reading culture. But I think there's it's a deeply intimate experience to read something, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think humans are ready to let go of that, which is what I think we're we're most interested in. That mm-hmm. That process of engagement, and you know, listening and reading is a hugely um, generous act. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, maybe we don't give people enough um enough credit because maybe our teens are more interested in, you know, quick cut videos and the like, but I think there's room. There's room also to develop a taste for things that take more time and are a little quieter maybe.
1: And you adverted fairly indirectly, but nonetheless fairly negatively to formal education when you were younger and kind of the place for that. Has that improved in the intervening period if we... I mean it's obviously it would be a generalization, but is there more space for that in in how you know kids, mm. adolescents, young adults are, are educated and, and taught to think about the world?
0: Ooh, yeah, at the risk of hugely <laughs> overgeneralizing. I think I think I think it has. And mm. just in the sense that it is a little bit easier to get access to some of these spaces that aren't, they're not mediated in the same way. I mean, of course, history textbooks are still the primary ways that we get our schooling, but I've seen poetry, audiovisual products, the internet expand that kind of space where young people, for instance, become makers, that is really important. Um, And I think that's part of the work that we see ourselves engaged with. It's kind of like, how do you push and make more space Hmm. for things that are less heard and have less institutional power, um, have less resources, but they're still getting out there. But I do think that the stuff that young people are more engaged with is stuff that speaks to them, in which they see themselves reflected, in which they see themselves as having an active role Mm -hmm. in both creating and, you know, (laughs) consuming, I guess.
1: If I come back to um, your point of entry as, as being interested in how the telling of stories might support advocacy or social change, and it, it, it sounds like what you're describing is kind of a more gradual, uh, very, very decentralized uh, process whereby people are exposed to different points of view through, through different means of, of communicating. And then sort of over time, this changes attitudes. And then over time, changed attitudes, perhaps, you know, change policies and, and legislation and that good stuff. Is, is that sort of the, the ambition or is there a more kind of direct lever there, do you think?
0: I would say I, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to quick change and mm-hmm. more direct action. I think a lot of times they can go together. Mm-hmm. Someone who feels like their story and their voice and their life experience is valued, I think is much more likely to take an active role. So one of the things I think about a lot, you know, Alessandro Pertelli um, he, he's an Italian lefty who, mm-hmm. you know, goes to, to Harlan County and spends years there, you know, and his approach going in is like, yeah, I can see why people might not trust me. They don't know who I am. They don't know what, what I'm there. It, might feel exploitative, it might feel extractive, but I approach it from a, you are the expert, you are the teacher. And yeah. I think flipping that dynamic, it's about you know handing the mic over and helping, collaborating um, in, in solidarity, not in um, an I'm helping you charity kind of act. I guess it's just a very different approach that I think makes for uh, a more engaged and active subject. Even calling our the people that we interview and work with in putting out their life stories, narrators, they are the active tellers of their story. I mean, it's kind of a weird word. Sometimes I know a lot of people don't get why we would use it. it sounds somewhat technical. Storyteller works too. <laughs> yeah.
1: well, anything but subject, right? Correct. Well, I ask in part because it's it's a interesting moment to be having this conversation. Obviously, um, because we are in the midst of a a global uh, health emergency of the kind that hasn't been seen in uh, 100 years, effectively. And we're also in the middle of a uh, increasingly, you know, very widespread and incre- increasingly widespread sort of political moment, which I don't think anyone expected to spread as far and as fast as it has, certainly in the UK where I'm sitting and in New York where you're sitting, but, you know, equally in, in uh, dozens of countries around the world where you wouldn't necessarily have predicted that you must have been reflecting on this, I imagine. What is the role of, of oral history at moments <laughs> like that? Because, well, there is a tension, right, between the the long, mm. the sort of long, slow process that you mentioned and, and, and events that are happening yeah. right now in the world.
0: Yes. Um, we've always struggled with this because there's this, you know, you see something like this unfolding and it, it, it feels and is quite urgent. Um, And one of the ways that we responded to it, we launched a storytelling initiative called Unheard Voices of the Pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we realized, you know, we weren't going to be able to do our normal thing, which is sit and interview people for a couple of hours on multiple occasions and work over several months to several years to, you know, basically sort out a coherent, um, mini-birth-to-now narrative.
1: It may not be a a strong narrative there, yeah.
0: So, But what we did recognise was, look, all of the narrator communities that we collaborate with were going to be affected in a disproportionate way by just the fact of all the pre-existing inequalities which the current pandemic were you know just looked like it would be likely to exacerbate and that you know people of color oppressed minorities were always going to bear the brunt of this and we have actually seen that played out and what we thought was a small contribution that we could make was both for for ourselves and for our larger community was to was to try to capture some of that, not by doing the life stories, but by doing shorter pieces that basically focused in on the question of what has the experience of the pandemic been like for you? And, you know, what does it say about our society? Mm. We talked to Roberto who was in the chasing the harvest book. He's a, agricultural farm worker out in the Central Valley in California. And, you know, uh, with what's been going on, he told the story. We were able to get it into The Guardian. And, you know, we were working on this series, hoping that, you know, some media outlet will want to partner with us and put these stories out into the world mm. with this kind of focus that says look the the folks who were oppressed and marginalized before the pandemic will continue to be so and will affected be affected more deeply and egregiously and we think it's important that they speak on that and what what's been happening to them and what they think about it mm. So, but it's, for us, it's a, a new kind of thing. It yeah. requires. So uh, I think
1: it's a new kind of thing for a new kind of situation for everybody. So. Yes,
0: yes. But you know, it's it's one of those things where uh, mm. pivot, and you know, these strange business terms, pivoting pivot. and being okay. agile. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I draw the line at agile, but pivot pivot is fun.
0: Maybe nimble, <laughs> we can use that. Yes. <laughs> uh, <I guess. laughs> but it has been um, truly, I mean, just just being able to check in with mm. some of our former narrators, you know, is, is something that I think was well worth it.
1: Mm. I do wonder if there's going to be more space for that sort of diversity of perspectives, you know, in a moment of, of crisis or less space, do people become more interested in nuance or do they become less <laughs> interested in, in nuance? I would think certainly yeah. a policy audience, like a government audience, is probably less interested in nuance in my experience.
0: For me, I think that it's it's forged a certain kind of space that didn't exist before hmm. where different futures are imagined and seem tangible, seem achievable in a way that they weren't before. Mm. I think that there's been more, more space and more of a a longing for different perspectives and not, not the same old talking heads. You know, I think that's been, I certainly seek it out. I mean, again, you know, we're not, we're not like. (laughs) (laughs) But I I certainly think that there's been more Hmm. interest and it's it's like we want to set up a situation where if you're not hearing from the folks who are directly affected, then you're not getting the full story and that, you know, you know that. So if you choose not to hear it, it's a choice it's yeah. a an active negative choice
1: yeah well and particularly I mean due to the coincidence of those two things that I mentioned at the very same time it's it's like quite an obvious choice, right I would think it would be a mm-hmm. a relatively ripe moment to be looking at curricula and yeah. Training of teachers in 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 pedagogical methods and and all that sort of stuff. I would think it's sort of a quite a propitious moment. I mean, it sounds a bit cynical to say this is a great no business jargon for you. This is a great uh, this is mm-hmm. a great opportunity for you um, to to further that mission. But it it does feel like it would be a good moment to say, hey, here are these resources that we've painstakingly developed over the course of a decade. Now would be mm-hmm. a great time for you to. Start using some of them. Is that I mean? Is that is that a, a too sort of uh, instrumental a way of thinking about things, or is, is that your experience? Uh,
0: it's maybe not quite the way I would look at it. Because one thing to think about is that sometimes the folks who are looking for these resources are not being forced to, mm-hmm. and it, it's not that. It's more like they just don't exist, and you know, having them makes it more, more likely, more possible, I'll say for New York city, because that's the education system I know best. Mm -hmm. um, You know, they made a shift a couple years back to uh, really emphasizing nonfiction. And that did open up a little bit of a space Mm -hmm. for it to be like, okay, if your kids are going to have to read um, something that's nonfiction to, to in order to meet certain requirements let it be something like this you know what is what is a first person narrative of a contemporary but you know something that might be put into a history book 20 years 30 years from now as being an original document Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing where you know i do feel like it's it opens up an opportunity and we're happy to take it
1: we started by your sort of recognition as a a, uh, even as a child, that the refugee community and even the working class communities, you know, were not uh, represented in in education or in sort of you know, the broader culture. At least not in a very positive way. Do you think you'll return to that at any point? Is that something that interests you still?
0: Um, hmm. I would be. I wouldn't be opposed to it. You know if somebody were to propose it, but you know, we're also a tiny little organization. I don't know if it's obvious, but we're, we're scrappy, you know, we do a lot, um, we can't ever do as much as we'd like to. So sure, I would love to return to that particular topic. I think there's a ton of mm. interesting aspects that could be explored. Yeah. I mean, you know there there are oral history projects, um but they tend to be you know they're trying to they're trying to basically be a repository for a super broad as many people as possible, right it will end up living in in the library collection somewhere, I think in California maybe um it's wonderful it's yeah. not gonna be a curated um Collection that will be easy to kind
1: of a super specialized thing, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And yeah, so if somebody were to propose that, again, one of the things, one of the Mm. criteria for our projects is that it has to be an urgent and underreported issue. So the issue of you know, resettlement in Appalachia Mm. is is more urgent there there has been you know an influx of refugees that people don't know about Mm. that you know and already people have a very um I think most people would agree with me distorted understanding of the history of the region itself when you
1: say when you say urgent yes how so
0: What what would you pinpoint as being an urgent um, issue among Southeast Asians in the United States? I'm not sure you could pinpoint there being one. And so that becomes a little difficult Mm. to have a focused collection to explore that theme if the theme itself is not clear something like Hurricane Maria, super clear. If I were doing this exact job in 1975, you can bet we would have been, you know, talking about that
1: yes, issue. I don't think this exact job. <laughs> weren't too many versions <laughs> of this in the 70s.
0: No, there weren't. Unfortunately. Right? Our, our jobs kind of emerged out of, yeah. out of uh, you know, Social struggles and um,
1: exactly, exactly yeah.
0: a moment, a moment, right that did that changed things, and I guess that's why we're here.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's kind of interesting tension between sort of the urgency of having something to organize around, and a hurricane is the perfect example, right? And mm-hmm. having a kind of emergent or or open-ended approach, and that you need that sort of theme or entry point, and then from there. It opens out a little bit.
0: I want, you know, one of our projects that embodies that tension perfectly is uh, how we go home. This is the, the galley for it, which, you know, makes me so proud. Anyway, the, the issue mm-hmm. is not one issue. It's basically, you know, voices from Indigenous North America. We had a lot of, we had a lot of material we had a lot of thinking to do about why it made sense for there to be a collection. And I think there were so many urgent issues that you know, became clearer. And it was all leading back to a fundamental question of the loss of land and life and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the connecting thread. So there wasn't a one immediate issue, but it, but it was urgent, urgent in the sense that for indigenous folks living in North America, this is the, the, the identity, the history is basically the connecting thread for a whole bunch of inequalities around healthcare, around housing, around employment, around social services, around childcare, around fostering, around, Mm. you know, people being stolen to these Indian boarding schools. You name it. It basically every issue Mm. in one community. Mm. And there's no way to be representative in a collection where you have 12 voices but even even with just a dozen stories, it was I don't want to use the word amazing because that implies like some sort of positive discovery. I mean it's it's sobering. it's
1: yeah.
0: incredible in the sense of hard to believe in some ways. But yeah, yeah so, so that for me, what what you said really hits on. This kind of a book because we we did we struggled with it uh, initially it was like how how do I justify that this is urgent in mm. that news kind of sense of the word and it's not
1: I mean there is urgency there right um, there are stakes of huge importance it's when urgency equals sort of newsworthiness that you have right that you have a problem
0: right
1: <laughs> I, I, of course I will fixate on the challenging aspect. what's the most difficult part of this for you coming you know coming into it as someone with you know their own background and thoughts and feelings and so on what part of the process do you find hmm. uh, most difficult
0: hmm. sometimes it's hmm. uh not letting what i think color what you know should happen i think i think it's keeping that, what I think, general social justice agenda from being the main mm. driver in the kinds of questions that we develop and, you know, how we edit the work. It it was a shift for me um, to to focus more on what I guess would be literary structure, uh, how to make something read more like a novel. And, and there's a, the other super challenging thing is for a lot of people, uh, especially folks for whom English is not a first language, it's, it is a struggle to both honor their authentic voice, but also ensure that mm. they sound like how they imagine they sound. You know, we we do a fair amount of work with people to always check. We've had narrators tell us, I don't sound like that. Mm. You need to fix it so that it's correct. And I, for the most part, we try our best to honor that.
1: Does it help having your background? I mean, I guess you would have grown up probably bilingual.
0: <laughs> well, you know,
1: <laughs> if you're iffy at this point, <laughs> but the, I mean the experience, the experience is often that the, you know, the children obviously have become fluent very quickly, but, um, parents can, the parents often struggle and it takes some of-
0: Yeah. My parents, my parents don't speak English.
1: <laughs> if your Vietnamese is iffy and your parents don't speak English, I'm curious how you communicate.
0: <laughs> yeah, I speak I speak kitchen Vietnamese, you know, yeah. basic words, basic household items, no political language to speak of, no emotional language, really.
1: Maybe that's an advantage with one's parents.
0: <laughs> it can be, can be. Um, but you were going to ask if that had something to do with
1: well, I, I, this this question of of how people express themselves and being true to that.
0: Yeah, I think you know, beyond just like centering these stories, it's about centering mm. the experience. So for you know, in in some interview type situations, there's this sense that. Um, say a reporter might be going in to grab a few choice phrases that support the bigger Mm -hmm. story that they're telling in their article. Whereas for us, Mm -hmm. that's not a concern. It's more, what does the, what does the narrator want to foreground and how they want to tell their story? And, and really emphasizing that through the whole process from beginning to end, they're in control And they have agency in so much as it's possible. It's not, it's not um, trying to erase the role of editors and facilitators and organizational structures, but is really as much as possible, trying to recenter that experience as well. Um, That, Mm -hmm. you know, telling your story isn't just for other people to use, but for you to be heard and for you to to try to shape your environment and your future in a way.
1: Hmm. Indeed. The last thing I always ask people, and you've already mentioned several, but is there a book or a play or a poem or whatever that has been particularly influential Mm. for you? What have you I guess. I mean, you mentioned People's History of the United States as is, is setting you on a path. So that's one example. But I, I don't know if you had another sure. one that's sort of been very influential. Uh, yeah.
0: Anything Studs Terkel touched. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think he provided yeah. such an exemplar of, you know, history from below, the importance and value of people talking about their everyday lives working in particular was
1: I was gonna I was gonna say you have to yeah
0: (laughs) yeah you know it I think it is a, a pretty radical act to posit ordinary people as the experts as the real um movers and shakers and makers of history in a collective way
1: you are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at One onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.